Welcome to Blockchain Explained, the podcast about opportunities, challenges, and trends in blockchain technology. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, a developer, or just crypto curious, this podcast is for you. It features industry leaders and government officials discussing the world of distributed ledgers, cryptocurrencies, and the metaverse. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Rick Schaffen and Kelly Wicker. Welcome to another episode of Blockchain Explained. I'm happy to be joined once again by my co-host, Alan Rick Schaffen, a trustee here at the Wilson Center and the chair of our Digital Assets Forum. We're really excited today because we're joined by the World Bank's Harish Natarajan, who is a practice manager in the financial inclusion and infrastructure, finance, competitiveness, and innovation section, uh, where he leads a global team working on topics like digital finance and digital assets. Uh, we're really excited to hear from him more about what these t technologies and tools can do for digital inclusion. Um, hi, Harish. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome, Harish. Harish, you know, before we get started, Kelly, I, I was just hoping that Harish could just sort of explain what the concept of financial inclusion is, you know, sort of lay out what we're talking about. Right. Uh, no, financial inclusion, of course, is um, uh, is um, kind of is not a very well-defined term, but in general, what, what one can intuitively understand what one is referring to. Um, if I, if I if I have to offer a definition, I would say it is it is essentially. Uh, the state of an individual um, households and micro, small, and medium enterprises having access to the financial services uh, that they need uh, to better their lives and to um, and to improve their economic prospects. So I think the operative word is here is like what uh, what are the appropriate products they need and being able to access them uh, and then also be able to use them effectively. Where do you see that there's a void in? Uh, that needs to be filled by the work that you're doing with the World Bank in terms of financial inclusion? Well, um, we do um, the, a survey uh, every uh, three years, and that's called the Global Findex, and that captures the, the state of financial inclusion for um, households, individuals, actually, uh, adults. Um, and this is, of course, talking about financial inclusion for individuals, but, of course, financial inclusion also includes for um, the access to finance for MSMEs, which I will come to uh, in, in a bit. So as per the data tracked um, uh, in the, uh, kind of using Findex, uh, in the last reading was in 2021, um, right after the, uh, right around the time when pandemic um, peak was coming down. Uh, the, the percentage of adults uh, who had access to um, a transaction account, which is basically an account either provided by uh, a bank or any other regulated financial institution, Using which they can make and receive uh, payments and uh, and uh, carry on with their economic lives, and that figure came in at 71% of the uh, adults in uh, in developing economy, in emerging markets and developing economies, and that um, across the world, uh, 1.4 billion adults uh, still do not have access to a transaction accounts, and if you break that down, about 50% of this is uh, coming from seven countries. Um, like India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, Egypt, China, and Bangladesh. So that's one way of saying where is the gap. Then, uh, of course, if you look at even within countries, um, uh, there, there are gaps um, across um, different parts of the country, you know, and there are gaps uh, by demographic. Uh, for example, the, the gender gap between uh, uh, on financial inclusion uh, was um, was nine percent, uh, and it came down to six percent. But there are uh, still uh, uh, several countries where uh, the gap is upwards of ten percent. 
Um, so that is another way to see where the, where, where is the gap. There is also gap by uh, youth um, versus the rest of the population. There's also a gap between um, uh, people who are in employment and those who are outside. Um, and, um, and, and of course, between uh, across countries, there's, there's quite, quite a bit of um, variation. Uh, for example, South Sudan came in at just 6% versus, um, versus a few countries came in at 100%. And even in the low-income countries, there's a very, a very wide dispersion going from 6% for South Sudan to 66% in the case of Uganda. So, so those are the different ways you could look at it. And in the terms of uh, access to finance for MSMEs, um, uh, there is um, uh, there's a significant um, gap which which remains. For, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, Harish. Yeah. You said access to financial. What's the next word you said? Access to finance for the micro, small, and uh, medium enterprises. Okay. So these are like your not your big corporates, but the small businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and there, the financing gap is uh, 2.1 trillion dollars uh, in emerging markets and developing economies. Uh, if you if you include informality. Uh, and um, and and the overall gap in emerging markets is 5.7 trillion dollars, uh, and which is 1.5 times the current supply of credit to micro, small, uh, and medium enterprises. So that's that's just to characterize the gap. I know in in the United States we've heard a lot about this idea that decentralized finance and digital finance could could help give people access to capital or help the unbanked access finance. I'm not sure we've really seen a lot of that play out in the United States. Um, we'll actually have a, a future episode um, exploring some new research on that. But Harish, I'd love to hear globally, are we seeing anyone really leverage these tools to address this problem? Yeah, well, okay, everybody is looking for um, a silver bullet, um, uh, like many things in life, but unfortunately there, is, there isn't one. Um, so, so I think um, one way to to look at this kind of whether the DeFi and, uh, and uh, as as a, as a technology uh, stack could help in addressing financial inclusion, it is it is useful to perhaps go back to what are the drivers and reasons why uh, there is financial inclusion, uh, financial exclusion uh, to begin with. And here, kind of to to put it stylistically, uh, of course, there's a lot of details behind it, but to put it stylistically, there are broadly three reasons. One is uh, it is too costly to serve certain uh, types of businesses, to serve certain um, individuals, uh, certain cohorts of individuals. Um, and this is the supply side, no? kind of in terms of the, the banks or other regulatory institutions find it too costly to serve them. And the, uh, the second one is the flip side of that sometimes that it is too costly to access and use financial services by certain cohorts. Uh, and then the, the third one um, is perhaps often underappreciated is the lack of um, motivation or lack of um, uh, kind of uh, recognition of uh, the benefits which might come or the reason to use uh, regulated financial services when there are other services which they could potentially use, like, of course, cash for payments and, and informal sources of credit and so on. Um, and one has to see what aspects of the technology could help in addressing these gaps. Uh, and if you dig down, there are, there are, there are uh, issues which come in because of uh, the context of the, of the cohorts who are excluded. Uh, there are also reasons related to the, uh, the competition in the market, the structure of the market, the regulatory and compliance requirements, uh, both, both to provide as well as to access. 
Uh, and then there are also social um, uh, social factors. Uh, there are also uh, issues related to trust and literacy. Uh, so there are all sorts of complex reasons behind this. No? And, uh, and it could vary by cohorts. Uh, it could vary by country groups. It could vary by, um, by the type of businesses uh, and, and, and so on. And it could also vary over a period of time. So given this, um, as you can imagine where I'm going, uh, no single technology or no single policy could help address um, all these gaps in a holistic manner. Uh, and all of these have to be addressed holistically for, uh, for you to see, for one to see progress in inclusion. Um, so, so that is the, the broader um, response from my side. But having said that, there are of course certain uh, attributes for uh, of certain um, technology stacks which could potentially um, help make a dent or help make new ways of approaching uh, the financial inclusion challenge um, and in the context of um, DeFi, um, there are a few attributes and we can talk about that uh, at this point given the um, DeFi services are not regulated or, uh, or at least not regulated uh, as um, as uh, as well as uh, other financial services, and uh, they're not as well supervised. So to look at look to DeFi to financially include uh, segments of population who are not using financial services at all, I think is is uh, is not the right way to look at it, uh, and this actually will pose more risks. Um, and uh, might lead to adverse outcomes uh, and will set people back or businesses back rather than helping them advance. But uh, as I said, there are some attributes of the technology which we could, uh, which, which we could discuss um, if time permits. Yeah, Harish, before we get into the, into the weeds on, on how the technology could be used to, to address some of these issues, explain to, explain to us, uh, if you would, um, the, each of these countries that you described has their own central bank. And you are you are part of the World Bank. So if you come up with the perfect solution, what does that have to do with what's going on in each of these countries? Like, how does the World Bank get involved with each of these countries when they come up with a solution to a problem like the unbanked or or the underserved? What what is your role with regards to the central banks of various countries in order to implement a solution if you had one? Right. So it is not. Um... Not, not that the World Bank is proposing a solution. Uh, I think it is more about um, us partnering with the, with the country and, and authorities in the country uh, to jointly think through the problems and, uh, and identify potential approaches and solutions which could address. And here it is, um, it is a group of solutions and no single solution, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and some of the uh, interventions, for example, uh, could involve uh, looking at the um, the legal and regulatory framework and see whether it is acting as a barrier to market entry of new types of providers of financial services or providers using different business models, which could address the, the three issues which I highlighted in the beginning. Uh, so that could be one set of interventions, and there have been a number of um, uh, success stories uh, related to that. Then the second set of interventions could relate to improving the financial infrastructure in the country. By financial infrastructure, I'm referring to things like uh, payment systems, uh, credit reporting uh, systems, and then also um, uh, use of digital ID uh, and ID identification systems 
in the financial sector to make it more easier to comply with the, um, with the customer due diligence requirements, which are often required as part of the financial sector uh, compliance requirements. Um, uh, making it more easier to, um, uh, to uh, access uh, and open accounts, uh, more easier to use uh, distribution models uh, for financial services, which might make it more easier to reach uh, different cohorts. Um, and then the third category of, um, of reforms, which could be relevant, is to uh, identify financial services which will uh, touch the lives of, um, of the cohorts who are not currently using them. And here, um, there could be things like uh, social protection uh, benefit transfers uh, to the vulnerable um, and where uh, they're delivering them digitally and in a manner that uh, the monies they are receiving uh, is into an account which they can use for other purposes has been seen to help uh, create access. Um, and then also there could be other uh, needs in the society like for example, transit payments in some countries has been the driver to motivate people to go and, uh, and open accounts and so on. And in the case of small businesses, uh, it, it could be the uh, ability to access credit uh, if they um, become included, using which they can grow their businesses, can act as a driver. So, so those are the, the kind of reforms which you could work with, with countries, and this is not all done at one go. Some of it might be done in phases. And then as things move, uh, there could be other issues which might come up related to competition in the market, related to consumer protection, which also need to be, of course, addressed um, uh, as well, the country moves uh, uh, in this journey. I know you mentioned this a little bit, and uh, um, I, I, I pick on it because we had other guests talk about this, talking about cross-border transactions. Um, multiple people have mentioned that as one of the best cases of, of what blockchain technology is suited to help people do. Does that play into the inclusion aspects at all? Um, or how are you seeing that successfully used? Yes, no, cross-border payments um, to use, um, to be able to make and receive cross-border payments is becoming uh, increasingly important. Of course, there was a cohort uh, who desperately needed this, and this is the migrant um, workers and their families. Uh, and for them, of course, remittances are a lifeline. So they were they were users of cross-border payment services, and many of them uh, was done uh, was done in cash, uh, but through regulated providers, and cash on both sides. But uh, of course, the message ex exchange, etc., happens digitally, and the funds flow on aggregate basis um, digitally. But then the, uh, in, uh, the kind of the inflow and the outflow is uh, is in uh, is in cash. Over a period of time, of course, digital providers have entered the market, and the digital services are are markedly cheaper than uh, sending through cash. Based on the data we compile, uh, called the quarterly, uh, which, which we compile quarterly, called the remittances prices worldwide database, uh, there is a, a close to 2.5 percentage point difference between uh, being uh, sending in cash versus sending digitally. So, um, so that uh, has improved because there are specialized providers who have entered the market and they are doing it digitally. Of course, there are frictions there related to foreign exchange cost, uh, related to uh, the multiple hops sometimes, and then also uh, the challenges related to being able to access those digital services and which are where there, there could be some opportunities to, uh, uh, to apply um, uh, 
DLT approaches. Um, and then there are businesses who need access to cross-border payments to, uh, to basically reach new markets. Uh, and there could be businesses and individuals who might need to use uh, cloud services uh, and participate in, uh, in some of the e-commerce markets for which, again, they will need uh, access to cross-border payments. So that, that need uh, for cross-border payments is only increasing, and it's no longer just the migrant workers, uh, which I was mentioning. So all of them need access to cross-border payments. Um, now, uh, here, um, uh, there has been quite a big body of work on this by G20 in the recent years, uh, which basically identifies the, uh, the frictions uh, in cross-border payments, um, kind of classifying it as high cost, low speed, limited transparency and uh, limited access. And all these are frictions which need to be addressed. Um, and a uh, lot of the approaches to correspondent banking is, is an overlay on uh, the correspondent banking. Um, a, a, a lot of the cross-border payment uh, solutions are overlays on correspondent banking arrangements and which um, have uh, delays associated with them. There are improvements underway uh, uh, for that infrastructure. Uh, but uh, um, but there are uh, there are challenges there, and uh, all the digital solutions which have been developed uh, are essentially at some some time or the other they will end they will end up uh, in the correspondent banking chain, and the 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 offering from the, or the promise from the blockchain and DLT based services is to create a new way of doing cross border payments where you don't need this um, kind of um, different hops which are required. But everything could be done on, on one unified ledger. So that is the that is the um, that is what is envisioned. And that, but of course, and that there unified. Are, yeah. I'm sorry, Harish. That unified ledger, and which would be distributed, obviously, because it's a blockchain. Is that by definition faster and lower cost than doing it on a centralized server? Yes. No, kind of. See the 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 um, kind of the um, the way the technology is presented. Uh, of course, it is it is intended to be faster. Uh, because the uh, uh, kind of when I say unified, what I mean is like everybody is on the same ledger. Of course, unified ledger is a, is a different context uh, concept which is being talked about now, and we can come to that. But essentially, about multiple assets being on the same ledger. But the um, the blockchain, as such, the the sending party and the receiving party are are both on the blockchain, and hence it is only a message exchange between them and uh, and transfer of assets between them, and hence there's no need for all the central entities. So that is the that is the vision. But, but if you look at the way how it come, how it fits in into the existing financial sector regulatory architecture, you run into immediately issues related to uh, who will verify the compliance, what is the governance of this, what about the currency exchange part, and then uh, what are the jurisdictional boundaries. And you end up having to introduce back certain institutions which were involved in the chain earlier, and the on-ramp and off-ramps at costs. Uh, and which basically end up coming back to the same uh, same situation related to cost, maybe a little bit on the time side, but on the cost side, it might not actually be cheaper, given that you now have this off-ramp and on-ramp, uh, which will add costs, and then your other institutions which are coming in, you don't address the, the same issues related to customer due diligence, which uh, if that was a barrier, you cannot use it. There are issues related to the foreign exchange and the, and the cost related to that, which doesn't necessarily go away by using blockchain. So you come back to the same issues which are hampering uh, cross-border payments uh, in, in the current arrangements. And how does this dovetail with what's happening with the evolution of central bank digital currencies? Is that imagine that some of the things that central banks are looking at 
is how to facilitate transactions for people who are unbanked, who are underserved by the banking system. And if we were to transition to central bank digital currencies on a blockchain, would that facilitate some of the the, the solutions that you're describing? Well, uh, the kind of the, the answer to this also would be very similar to what I gave earlier in the sense that no one technology will address it. Um, uh, central bank digital currencies could offer looking at offer new pathways, but the fundamental issues will need to be addressed, as I mentioned earlier, and assuming those are addressed, then what the central bank digital currencies will potentially uh, offer is the ability to uh, bring in new players into the market who could offer these services. Uh, it could offer, um, uh, it could do some level setting in terms of these, uh, with central bank being involved. It could do some level setting in terms of the quality and um, and the pricing and things so that there could be some level setting on that. There could be guaranteed access, which could be built in because of the central bank involvement, uh, a guaranteed access in the sense that you should be able to use it across different locations. So in that sense, it could have a positive effect on, on financial inclusion, but it will not have the positive effect if the other issues which I talked about earlier are not addressed. And if there is not uh, adequate incentives and uh, interest from the private sector to be able to participate in this process because the central bank is not going to be doing the end customer service and so on. So there the private sector will have to come in as, uh, as distributors of CBDC and to offer those services. So that is on the domestic side. Now on the cross-border side, uh, of course, um, there could be new ways of uh, addressing the foreign exchange conversion point I was mentioning earlier. There could be new ways of addressing um, the involvement of different institutions uh, in the in the chain. So those are all things which could potentially support cross-border payments. Um, and uh, of course, there are a lot of experimentation uh, which is happening on this. Uh, there are a lot of um, pilots and proof of concepts which have come out uh, from across the world, all pointing to that there are ways in which some of the frictions we talked about can be addressed in new ways uh, with, with central bank digital currency. Um, now, central bank digital currency doesn't necessarily mean using blockchain and doesn't necessarily mean using public permissionless blockchain. Most of the designs being talked about are, are do not use DLT um, and even those ones which use, use permissioned. Uh, so I think, um, but there are ways in which CBDC can be provisioned in a, in a, in a permissionless uh, blockchain. Uh, and, and there are experimentations going on at this point, but there's of course no live implementation of that. Harish, I feel like we could talk to you all day. You have such interesting uh, insights on this. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time, but I did want to ask, uh, from your perspective, where, where are the most exciting and most successful uses of this technology uh, coming from? Which countries are like, leading on this? Or is it uh, specific groups? Um, where should we be looking for the success stories? Um, well, no, I don't see, I don't think we can say, uh, give an example of any particular country, uh, but I see in general, uh, if you compare the characteristics of the te technology, the economic forces and the policy objectives, I think all of this will have to intersect and that will what will determine what can be implemented in the marketplace in, in steady state. So on the, uh, on the characteristics, uh, kind of all the, all the parties having access to same data, the ability to do transactions on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, the mutability, the programmability uh, aspects, and then the distributed nature, which enhances the resiliency. All these are 
the technology features. And then there are policy objectives on stability, integrity, efficiency, inclusion, and consumer protection. And then you have the economic forces of scale, scope, uh, network externality, customer convenience, and of course, importantly, the inertia point that there are existing infrastructures and existing ways of doing things, and there's an inertia which, which is associated, associated with that. So all of this will have to, uh, there's the interplay of all of this, which will ultimately determine what, what gets worked out in the market. So I see the, um, the quicker path is, is on markets which are currently, uh, and here I'm talking not about geographic markets, but I'm talking about the parts of the, uh, the financial markets, which are not uh, as digitized as others. Uh, so here one could look at things like agricultural and commodities value chain, where the market is very fragmented, they're long and transparent value chains here. Uh, and uh, here there could be potential applications where the inertia point doesn't necessarily come in because there are no well-established um, uh, kind of institutional arrangements, there's not much digitization which is there anyway. So those are perhaps markets where things could move faster. Uh, and then there are also the, the point about one's own data, you know, the whole self-sovereign point about you being able to control what information is shared and so on. So there, that again is, is an area where, which is new uh, with very little existing uh, frameworks and infrastructure, where again, there could be uh, applications. But of course, in all of this, the legal frameworks are evolving, the technology infrastructure might need to fully reach maturity, the societal norms will have to start accepting them in particular in the case of one's own data. And, uh, and it, going back to the previous point I was making in terms of policy objectives and the customer and market forces, all of that will have to, uh, have to align. Uh, but these two seem to be potential areas where uh, there could be um, more work to be done and where there could be opportunities. Well, uh, of course, cross-border payments is, has been talked about and, uh, and uh, I will not get into that again. So let me stop here. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you because we could go on all day. But and um, if our, our if our uh, audience, our, our partners in, in, in Blockchain Explain is our audience, could you steer us somewhere to look at what the World Bank is doing? Is there a website uh, we could post on the we'll, we'll post below this broadcast. But is there is there material that you put out that people could follow what the World Bank is evolving in this area? Yes, you could look at um, um the World Bank's uh, FinTech and the Future of Finance uh, flagship uh, reports, which we had uh, published. Uh, there are also uh, dedicated pages for um, web, web pages, uh, the World Bank website for financial inclusion and payment systems. So I can send you the links which you could uh, which you could include. Terrific. Harish, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's, it's really a, an exciting time to be alive for a number of reasons. And uh, it seems like there's a big evolution going on in the financial sector and the World Bank focus on this and the evolution uh, in central banks all over the world in terms of looking at solving a problem for for the unbanked for to create more financial inclusion but also it could evolve the entire marketplace in a way that could be better for everybody and i really appreciate the work you're doing and i'm sure that our audience is going to appreciate uh hearing your thoughts today and kelly it's always a pleasure being with you Thank you all for listening to Blockchain Explained, for being with us today, and we look forward to seeing you next time here on Blockchain Explained to hear more about the evolution and the exciting things that are coming from this great new technology. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Blockchain Explained. Please note, nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice. 
Want more clear-eyed analysis of this exciting technology? Search for Digital Assets Forum at the Wilson Center for research, event recordings, and more. Want to ask our hosts a question? Write to stip, S-T-I-P, at wilsoncenter.org with your thoughts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Blockchain Explained.